Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. You're listening to The Private Collector. Hang on to your hats. Things are about to get weird. It took more than three months to track down Shiva's ring. No thanks to the librarian's usual cryptic meanderings. He just told me, go find it. You'll know what to do when it finds you. By now I was used to about anything in the way of confusing riddles from himself, and welcomed a little free-ranging off the books, with no expiration date, so I could think things through. I wondered if it was his way of getting rid of me while he inducted Martine into the what-fors he had in mind for her and didn't half mind if that's just what he was up to. I wasn't worried about Martine. My girl and me, we were on bedrock and we'd saddle up together down the road one way or another. Besides, she needed to spread her wings and I figured she could handle the librarian at least as well as I had, if handling was what you'd call it. I always seemed to be hot-footing between getting by on the skin of my teeth and recovering from dropping the ball, most of the time never even knowing there was any ball in play. As for the caper itself, I was ready for it, whatever it was. Without a clear-cut plan and destination in mind from the librarian, it reminded me of the heydays when Doug and me, we'd suss out our own cases, digging up clues our way and digesting it all to solve whatever was in our faces. So when I was told to go find this Shiva's ring, I took it as some kind of treasure hunt. No idea what it was, whether I'd carry it home in my pocket or get swallowed up by it whole and come out its rear end as something new. It was all the same to me. So, like I said, for better than three long months of dead ends and bum leads, I'd scried for news of something, anything called Shiva's Ring. I'd scoured from egghead libraries and dens of questionable repute to sewing bees and bingo halls. I'd bribed fellow detectives, put the squeeze on conman cultists and stoolies, I called in favors from hoodoo men and magic types I knew from here to kingdom come, on the phone, in person, and through the ethers. And nobody, not a damn soul, living or dead or in dispute, had ever heard of it, or would cop to it if they had. Some even got a buzz off it themselves, and set off looking through their own by the byways. But nothing I'd gone down to the quarter and bunked with Maurice for about a week to catch him up to what Martine was doing. But he already knew, of course. The Baron had never let one of his own wander too far afield without he'd keep a close eye on her. 
Maurice didn't know anything about Shiva's ring either, and between the two of us, we'd come up with Zilch, just like everybody else, which popped the balloon of our collective mojo and left us with only one recourse. Like a couple of snot-nosed punk kids in a scrape running to daddy, Maurice and I decided to call on the Baron Samdi. The kids set up a real elaborate ritual to see if the Baron, his and Martine's patron, would be of a mind to help us. Now, there's something you gotta understand about what all that meant. Just what all was involved in knocking on the Baron's door, hat in hand, and asking for favors. You don't just call up the Baron like a buddy from the neighborhood, and never without cause. Serious cause. Martine. Now, things were different with Martine. The Baron rode her, and she was his, in a special kind of way. In rituals for the community down there, he'd come through her as his own private gateway. There was an intimacy, a proximity between them never broken, never to be spoken of, and I sure as shit never did. This was why the Baron knew where she was and what she was up to at every minute. Maurice. Now he was another story. If Martine was a friend to the Baron, Maurice was, well... Maurice was what you'd call a kind of employee, way down the payroll, but still with a certain access, long as there was just cause. And who knows, maybe the Baron favored the kid because he was Martine's kid brother. Who could say? Another thing you gotta know is there's always a price to be paid with the Baron, and it's never just nickels and greenbacks, although that could figure into the mix. The price was never just the generous quantities of fine premium rum and $20 cigars the Baron demanded, or all the other trinkets and signs of courtesy you'd lay out for openers, just to show you were serious and knew your way around things. No, it was more than that. You'd have to prove yourself worthy of the Baron's notice, each and every time, and give old Somdi something of yourself in exchange. Something precious and hard-won you'd rather open a vein than part with. See, it's a kind of truth, is what the Baron demands. A piece of yourself you don't want nobody else to know about. That's where the initiation comes into the thing, though most people don't see it that way. They just think the Baron likes to see you bleed for his own amusement. For my part, I knew what it meant for the kid to offer to call up his boss for me to help me out in a jam where I wasn't seeing any light shining down from the great by-and-by. I also knew it wouldn't just be Maurice who opened a psychic vein in this hoodoo rodeo he was putting together. It was old Frank Enfield, too. And that was justified. There's something else, too. And maybe this was the kind of secret the Baron always dug up out of you. Maurice is my blood brother in all things, and I trust him with my life. But dead to rights, he was being more than just a hero by offering himself up like this, helping a buddy in a jam, and I was the same way. Once you've gone far enough down the hex road, once you've drunk from Juju's cup one too many times, you get to jonesing for it. You need it real bad, all the time, like a fix, and you'll take it any time and any way it comes, and you'll never turn down a chance to get in its way. We grinned at each other, Maurice and I, when we made the pact to call up the Baron, and we knew it was going to be a rough ride. Oh hell yeah. And we were chomping at the bit.
That was another reason the librarian could count on me time and time again without a peep. No matter how far you go down this road, there's no turning back until the end of days. Yours, or the other kind. And what I was really hankering after was another go-around with the crow gazers. Until then, well, it was all about Shiva's ring. The night of the big doings, Saturday as was tradition, I arrived at Maurice's potions, spells, herbs, and whatnots in the alley behind Decatur. Things were supposed to get going around midnight, but at just south of 11.30, I could hear the party, and party it was, had already started in, and the cadenced hypnotic rhythm of drums and bare feet flooded the alleyway and made all the rafters in the vicinity shake and the ground tremble. I flipped the latch on the gate to the garden out back, and the sight of many a late night calling forth and drunken revelry swept over me like a hot, lusty wave, and damn near took me off my feet. Most of them seemed to be the kids' buddies from Café Lafitte in exile, a watering hole down on Bourbon Street where guys like him, who didn't cotton to the Janes much and their female counterparts could socialize in peace without too much noise and bother from the constabulary. This meant it was a pretty spicy crew all around, and the dancing was wild, crazy, and uninhibited, as usual for this kind of shindig. The second I heard those drums, my whole body turned to rubber, and I was already moving with the beat as I made my way over to Maurice and took a bottle of the Baron's favorite from him and slugged back half the bottle before I came up for air. From that point on, it was the kid's show, after he'd gotten Papa Legba's all clear and we could proceed to the main event. There were six or eight guys, besides Maurice, dressed up as Samdi himself, weaving through the crowd, along with a handful of girls decked out like Maman Brigitte teasing them and giving them hell. We were all making sparks when Maurice took the center of things and made his offerings. Papa had given the green light. However he does that, and it's made known, and Maurice was in his element and given over to the passions. The rum was long past flowing like a Mississippi flood, but now the kid brought out what he called the good stuff, way too expensive to spend on the likes of us mere mortals. He spit-sprayed it a number of times over the Baron's altar, then over the crowd just the one time. Then he lit the cigars, like they were candles, a whole box of them, and set them in a vase alongside the intricate veve that was Samdi's signature of a sort. The dancing raged on, the drummers doubled in number, and I could feel the ground under my feet, pounding my feet till they were numb. Maurice was going to town, reaching his crescendo in front of the altar, all of a sudden, a girl broke free of the crowd, wild-eyed and beating furiously at the air with her arms. I gasped, and my jaw dropped to the floor. It was Martine. Maurice hadn't told me. Nobody had said nothing. And I had no idea she was down in these parts. But I knew enough, of course, not to mess with things as the Baron made his appearance and rode his girl, now all decked out like Maman Brigitte. I was getting woozy, and my vision went sideways. Everything was slowing down to a sluggish jerkiness, throbbing to the cadenced hammering of the drums, now in sync with my own heart as it pounded in my chest and ripped through my veins like fire. 
I watched Martine leap through the crowd, her hands and fingers grasping sensuously at the hot bodies in her path, men, women, pressing up against them all, enfolding them each in a deep embrace, a luscious kiss. Then she ripped herself out of their arms and away from their kisses as they grabbed for her, and she whirled into the next embrace like some crazed priest flinging out the breadcrumbs and wine from her fingertips. And I suppose that's exactly what she was doing. I waited for my turn, but she never came to me, and after a while I slumped in a corner. Too much drink, the noise, the heat, the juju finally getting the best of me. I was yanked awake by somebody pummeling me with his fists and screaming my name. I sat up and covered my face. The party was over. Hey, hey! What gives, man? What happened? I looked at my foe and saw it was Maurice. He just kept coming at me, pounding me and sobbing like a baby. Man, what's happened to you? What you doing, man? You go loco on me? I yelled and shoved him off of me. He stopped and stared at me for a minute. Then he lunged at me covering my face with a hungry wet one that almost sucked the breath out of me. I just froze for a second, then remembered this was my best friend since we were both tykes. I knew the score with him, but damn it, he knew the score with me too, with me and Martine. He pulled away and curled up in a ball, sobbing some more. Come on, Maurice, old pal, you know I ain't like that. I'm not one of your buddies from the Lafitte, come on, I said, wiping my face with my sleeve. Oh, jeez, man, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, he wailed. Hey, Maurice, uh, don't worry, we're both drunk. You'll forget all this in the morning. I tried to brush it all off, but he just sat up and hugged me real hard, and I let him do it, knowing I just didn't have it in my nature for anything more in that line. But it was Maurice, after all, and I could see he was hurting bad. Then he apologized again and lay in my lap like a kid who just lost his mama. I held him there, too, knowing he was in the grips of the Baron's price, and knowing I was, too. If this had been Martine, would I have been up to anything more? The librarian had taken a lot that was human out of me, but I knew I still loved my girl with all my heart. Hey, Maurice, why didn't you tell me Martine was going to be here tonight? Where'd she get off to? I said, looking around and trying to lighten the mood of things. What? Martine, she wasn't here? What are you talking about? The kid looked at me like I was nuts this time. Martine, she was here. I saw her. She danced with the Baron like she always does. Come on, don't mess around, I said, getting hot under the collar. No, she wasn't. Sis wasn't here. Maurice, I'm telling you she was here. Damn it all to hell. The Baron rode Martine tonight. Everyone saw her. A damn sight more than just saw her, too, from the looks of it. Ask anybody, I said, gesturing around. But everybody who was still there was dead to the world, communing with the Baron in their own way. And instead of drums, the garden pulsed with the sound of snoring. You had your back to us the whole time. You know that. You'd never have seen her anyway. She was here, Maurice. She was here, I tell you. Well, okay, well, all right, if you say so. My could have been she was in ascending or something. Could just be. I don't rightly know, but I got something for you, my man. He grinned, his arm dangling around my neck. The old Maurice back again, wily and full up of sass and mischief. Your Shiva's ring? 
I know what it is. And your brother, man, Maurice, he know just where to find it. He said excitedly, wiping away the last couple of minutes of social uncertainty between us. And I was glad of it. This been one long hard night, cuz for sure. But it's done with and over, and we two juju men done survived and thrived. <laughs> yes, sir, we done survived and thrived. None the worse and better for it. And we done made away with the very thing what we come for, with the Baron's blessing to boot. No amount of arguing could convince Maurice to come with me. He'd called up the Baron. I'd found news of what I was looking for that I hadn't been able to suss out on my own, or with all the usual help I could scrounge up, and after that, I was on my own. I couldn't blame the kid, though. I'd had to cover better than 2,500 miles to get where I was going, and it was a rough haul into the wilderness. And up in British Columbia, it was damn near winter, and already the snow was setting in. I'd traded my signature $30 suit and wingtips for a pair of timberjack boots, a plaid flannel, and some dungarees. Levi's, they were called. Not my usual look, but I suppose I cut a figure. I jumped down from the back of the rusted old truck that brought me the last 50 miles of my journey and waved to the driver as he turned around and disappeared back down the unpaved logging road. Looking around, I saw black pines as far as I could see, reminding me of the mountains where I'd almost met my fate at Rook's Folly. Only this wasn't as nice a digs as that sad lamented ruin, now removed forever from Felicity. No, all I could see here besides the trees was a couple dozen or so run-down tin shacks, a sea of mud and snow melt that looked like it was about to swallow the place whole, and a bunch of old rusted equipment, abandoned to rot in the elements. I had no idea what any of this gear was used for. Pulleys and busted cables and suspension gizmos, better than three times my height. Half-eaten old rusted-out metal drums of all sizes and descriptions. Trucks and other vehicles, the likes of which made no damn sense to this city dweller. Busted-up train tracks, too small though for any trains I knew, ran here and there disappearing into an outcropping of rock in the distance. Piles of rubble half buried in the snow littered the ground, and everywhere there was just a ruin and a riot of rusted junk sticking out of the snow. The shacks. Some of them were obviously abandoned, all caved in and rotted. A few even had trees growing out of them. A few were just plain wood, patched a lot of times, some corrugated, some not, all in sore need of a paint job. Nothing fancy here. This wasn't any town by a long shot. But there was folks here. A couple of mean-looking brindle pooches with spiked collars ran up to sniff me out and bark to beat the band, and I could see smoke rising from a crooked tin smokestack or two. The largest of the buildings, a big metal quonset patched and repaired in a lot of places and doing its best to resist the rust, stood at the end of the camp with its door open, and that's where I made my way, escorted by my canine guards who took turns sniffing my hands and growling and yapping to whoever'd taken interest in a new arrival. I didn't see any hotels or public watering holes, and didn't think I was likely to, so I started leafing through whatever yarn I was going to spin to make sense of what I was doing here. 
I didn't think anybody would take me for the new Jack London, and not having a bead on what all this gear was for, I wasn't going to just wander in and make myself at home and ask when payday was. But I might just sort of pull off some fool's mix of the two, and decided I was a newspaper man from back east, looking for a story and ready to make himself useful in exchange for some gritty, true accounts of men at work and a few photographs. I'd be more than happy with whatever grub Cookie was slinging. Much obliged. I came up to the big Quonset, and a guy in leather suspenders and red long johns sticking out of his coat stepped through the door and tugged a hat over a head of hair that looked damn near white, and a pair of the palest blue eyes I'd ever seen glared me down as I closed the distance between us. He was almost a foot taller than me and looked like he'd lived rough all his life. I put him somewhere in his forties, maybe even younger. Hello, the guy said for openers, letting me put my cards out first before deciding to wallop me himself or call for his buddy, or just tell me to get. He was eyeing me real close, and I figured he was one of those people who could get a clear read of a man real easy, so there was no point putting too fine a spin on anything I told him. But Frank Enfield knows how to look like anything what he wants to. And I figured my story was straight enough. Howdy, I said, touching the brim of my hat. I sure could use something wet for my whistle and a place to park my butt. I said, all friendly-like. I'm at the end of one long ride. Come up here from the States, back east. Yeah, well, may as well get on into my office then, he said, pointing me to a weathered shack like all the rest next to the Quonset. I suppose I got a bottle of something lying around someplace. We stepped inside, and there was a pot-bellied stove pouring heat into the room, and I made a beeline for it. Besides that, there was a couple of old wooden chairs, a bunch of faded maps on the wall all writ up with notations, a bunch of books on a big table in the corner, a couple of locked metal cabinets with more books stacked on top, a desk covered with papers, a few rocks, a pair of tin cups, and a pistol. There was rifles in a locked case, too. Quite a few of them. And I suppose it was called for out here where the nearest neighbors would be bears, wolves, and big cats. Take a seat, he said, grabbing a stack of coats off a chair in front of the desk and tossing them onto a nearby pile. He poured us each a generous splash from an unmarked bottle into the two tin cups. So what brings you all the way up here to Shiva's ring, fella? We don't get too many strangers passing through. Nothing much to see, and all the good skiing and trappings further up north, inland. Fishing up there, too. Folks come up here to fish, mostly. From the States, too, I hear. Well, name's Frank Enfield, I said, and he reached his big calloused hand over and shook mine. Einar Bjornsson, he said with a nod, and then waited to see where I was going with all this. A pleasure, Einar. I'm a newspaper man, see? From back east, like I said. New York. You mean the New York Times? He barked, his head jerking back as he sat up straight in his chair. Oh, no, no, sir. I said, laughing. Nothing like that. Just a small town outfit upstate. Nothing fancy. Subscription's been falling last few years. Folks leaving town and all. So I've had to go farther afield to get stories from far and wide. Giving the locals back home in Hudson a little slice of what life's like for folks they'll never meet. Ways of life they'll just never see. Silver mining's real interesting, and I think it'd make for a great story. I'd be no trouble. 
Stay out of your hair, help out where I can, and pay for my room and board. Be no bother at all. You got my word, sir. Einer. Well, I'm sorry to say, Shiva's ring mine ain't much. We're barely hanging on by our teeth here. Don't know how much longer we got. You've seen the place, the Dolly Varden mines just up north. They got a real place on the map. Being a big part of the mining history up this way. Bjornsson said, taking his hat off and wiping his eyes with it, and squinting from the sun that bore down through the window on us like hell's own beady-eyed gaze. They got a real slick operation up there. Lots to see. I reckon you'd call them our city cousins. Rich folks, you know. And us just the sad relations. Tapped out, piss poor, and too damn proud to ask for a handout. He added, jerking his head toward the window at the broken-down bunkhouses and cook shack and old rusted equipment. Back around 1910 or so, the Dolly Varden was a damn lucky find, come upon by four Norsky prospectors. Guys like me and my pappy. They say the name Dolly Varden comes from a character in some book by that Dickens chap out of England, from some dream of a relative of one of them miners. A dream come true the way I see it. They say between 1919 and now, they brought up better than 15 tons of high-grade white metal out of that hole in the ground. Can't say we had such luck over here, but then we keep to ourselves mostly. He said, looking at me with renewed curiosity, and I was sure a glimmer of suspicion had crept in there too. Don't get much traffic. Most folks make a beeline for the Dolly V outfit, where they know there's work to be had. Not sure there's much of a story or any pretty pictures to offer a young guy like you. Probably best you set out for the Dolly V. He finished talking, and I didn't quite feel I was being told to clear out exactly, but I knew for damn sure I wasn't being invited back home for dinner either. If it's all the same, I don't want no part of some slick operation. It's the real human story I'm looking for. The hardships of hard work. Guys making their way like they did a hundred years back. If you have a mind to give me a chance, I'd be much obliged. And as I say, I got a strong back, and these hands ain't never seen no manicure. I said with a grin, and that cracked his glare, and he shot me a wink and chuckled. Okay, Frank, sure. We'll give it a try. Just mind the rules, stay away from where you're not supposed to go, for safety reasons. Don't mess with the guys more than you need to. They got a lot of work to get done before the snow gets any worse. And we'll get along just fine, he said, slamming the rest of his drink back and not moving for any refills. I wouldn't stay more than a week or so, or you'll be stuck up here till spring. Now, I gotta get back up to the hole. You go on over to Cookie and he'll show you where to bunk. You got a place you can buy some supplies... Ain't much, but they got some bedrolls and a few things we keep on hand for new guys who come down from the Dolly Varden when the workload slows down up there. And we still our own hooch. All you want. No label, no cost. He added with a grin. <laughs> we don't spit out too much metal here, but she's a good steady drip spring late to fall. Now's about when we start to shut down. Most of our guys, though, they stick around even in the winter. Some guys are like that. No family, no taste for folks really to speak of, and as long as there's a dry roof and a steady supply of grub, 
elk steaks mostly, fish, some bear, and firewater, of course. A few guys to play cards with, and, and they're pretty much right with the world. He said with another handshake, and then I was wading through the mud towards the Quonset in search of Cookie. Before I could make it to the Quonset, the lunch whistle blew, and everybody scrambled out of the mine and grabbed their lunch boxes, or made their way to the cookhouse. I saw one young kid, the youngest guy I'd seen so far, sitting on a log having a smoke. I made my way over to him, and he grinned and flicked the brim of his hat. Mind if I join you? I asked. Much obliged, mister. I could use the jaw wagon, he replied, offering me a hand rolled. But I turned it down, having never developed a taste for the things. Name's Enfield, Frank. Howdy, sir. Name's Shasta. Bo Shasta. He said with a grin as we shook hands. Shasta? You mean like the mountain up north in California, yeah? Say, now that's right. You must get around a lot, fella. You a traveler? He asked, clearly in awe that I'd heard of the place. Well, no. I'm a newspaper man, so I gotta put a lot of miles on the bottoms of my feet. But I've seen a big part of the country. You mind telling me a bit about yourself? I'm here working a story about miners and their life for the folks back home. Where you're from, what you're doing in these parts. You come from mining folks, do you? I asked, getting my pad and pencil out to take notes and play the part. Oh, hell no. I'm from California right enough, but a few yards south of the mountain. In Dunsmuir. You ever heard of that? No, you got me there. I'm from New Orleans. I bet you heard of that fair city of ours, I said, trying to up the ante and loosen him up. I'd already taken the kid and figured I could get a ready beat on the place from a friendly youngster with a loose tongue. No kidding, he said with a breathy whisper, his jaw actually falling open, and he nodded and let loose another toothy grin. Although I'm working out of Hudson, New York these days, and if you ever heard of that place, I'll buy you a $20 cigar and light it with a $50 bill. We both laughed and the kid finished his smoke and then rolled another. You got a family in Dunsmuir? Folks and the like? A girl, maybe? What brings you up here? I bet that's quite a yarn, I said, poking him in the ribs and noticing that the grins disappeared when I mentioned family. No, sir. No family to speak of. Ma died young, and Pa, well, he went on to the promised land not six months ago, leaving just me and my sister Bonnie. We're twins. I got no girl, no time for it, and I gotta make sure Bonnie's okay before I can get on with anything of my own. I'm up here working my tail to the bone to send money back home, so Bonnie can keep the farm paid up. Then I'm going back, and we start our families there, I expect. I'd been up to the Dolly Varden first, of course, but they was done hiring for the season, so they sent me down here. Said they use roustabouts year-round down this way. Not sure doing what, though. Too many more weeks, and this place will be snowed in tight as a drum. Nobody getting in or out. You better get before then yourself, or you're staying the winter. Say, you want to see something right fine? Bo asked, the smile and sunny disposition lighting up his face again. Sure thing. I can always use a sight for sore eyes. Well, looky here then. This here pocket watch belonged to my daddy's daddy, then him. Pops gave it to me not long before he left this world. A thing of beauty, ain't it? He beamed. Boy, I'll say. And it was. 
A real treasure. No doubt from times long ago when the Shastas were a lot more prosperous than this poor kid. See that inscription right there? It says, To my son, and all my sons after him from his daddy and his daddy's daddy before him. The kid said, purring over the words and smiling at the watch. Before he could say another word, the whistle blew, and everybody headed back to the mine, leaving me no closer to a beat on this place than I'd had before. I couldn't feel a damn thing out of the way in this camp, and Spidey was sawing logs somewhere and not letting out a peep. I went and looked up Cookie, laid down a few bills, and come away with an extra blanket, and even picked up a bucket of wood and a few other odds and ends. I took the free bottle of hooch Cookie offered with a rummy, toothless grin, and then I was making my way through the mud to the tin shack that was going to be my home sweet home for the duration. Fortunately, it was empty, and the other bunk was stripped bare. I hoped its occupant had hightailed it for warmer climbs, and I'd enjoy the solitude, where I could take out a deck of playing cards of my own later after dark and see what was what in this neck of the woods that could get the librarian all fired up enough to send out the infantry. So far, all I'd seen was a bunch of sad sack miners a long ways from the sunny side of the pasture, at a camp that looked like it was going to rot and would soon be swallowed up by the forest. So that meant I had to do some mining of my own, drill down into the ethers a bit. All I'd gotten out of Maurice was that Shiva's ring was a mine, and its rough location on a map, and I figured that was all the Baron had a mine to offering up. But that was good enough, and now the rest of it was in my lap. It was sunset, and the camp had settled down. The men were playing cards in the mess hut, or wandering back to their bunks to get their loads on. I put on the old parka I'd bought from the supply hut, and then slipped out into the encroaching darkness, and made for the ring of tall pines that held the camp in a vice grip. I didn't need any flashlight, as my night vision had always been better than most, and ever since the librarian had done for me whatever he'd done with those tanks and hoses, well, my senses would put a cat to shame. Then I found an old log that looked like it had fallen from grace long before the first Whitefoot ever set down in these parts, and parked my butt and opened myself up. That's what I do when I get into new places in the great outdoors, places unknown to me where we're a stranger to each other. I just sit for a while and let down the drawbridge we humans normally keep rolled up tight against passers-by, our fellow brethren or otherwise. Mostly otherwise, though we don't know it. Most of us, anyway. This is how it is. Out in the wilds like this, whether it's deep old-growth forest or coyotes' desert, or the borderlands that divide land from the crashing surf, the human being... Well, he ain't king there like he thinks he is. Most of the time, the critters that infest these regions, and the mighty old-time spirits of the places themselves, have no interest in humans, and leave them be. Unless they happen to have a bit too much mischief in them, and then they can wreak all kinds of havoc. Deep Forest has its own special kind of haint. The feel and spirit of the place. It's dark and vast and empty, but it has a power to it that can suck the wind and everything else right out of you. It can leave you empty, lost forever, or filled up with something else, and it's that you gotta worry about. 
So it's all a matter of showing the right respect. Show your power, stand your ground, but stand down. Show you're not to be feared, but you'll brook nothing to fear on your own part. So it wasn't long before I felt the first of the little ones come nosing around. The haints natural to the woods and the trees. The winds and their special kind of harmless mischief. All of them snuffling around me like a bunch of pups, nuzzling, taking a nip at me and then running for cover, crawling up for a scratch. Then they were gone, and everything was dead quiet. I was surrounded only by the darkness, ancient as the earth itself and a part of it, curious why somebody'd come looking for it, naked as a jaybird as I was, spiritually speaking, asking no favors and telling no lies. I braced myself for the touch, the feel of the thing passing through me, like I was an old screen door, and like the wind itself, there was no stopping it, no hiding any part of myself from its gaze as it looked me over. Next thing I knew, I was running, crashing through the trees and underbrush faster than I ever knew any human could run, maybe even half running, half flying. I got a glimpse of the tops of trees then, and I was looking down at them, and I knew I was flying, or more like being carried. Something icy cold was flooding through my veins, flowing out into the wind, and the wind was filling my veins, and all I could do was laugh like a damn fool from the sheer giddy pleasure of it, like the downside of the roller coaster at Coney Island. Then it too was gone. I was seated again on my log, reeling like a drunken man, and the sounds of the nighttime woods returned, and somewhere somebody was playing a harmonica, and somebody else was cursing, which was drowned out by a bunch of men laughing hard. Not sure how long I'd sat there, just floating in the waves of that flight and the one who touched me. It was always a gift, and it added to who you were, being touched by those ancient spirits like that, long as they left you none the worse for wear. But I got what I'd come for out here that night. The spirits of the woods had touched me all right, and knew every secret I had to hide but it had shared something of itself, too. It wanted to know if I was friend or foe, if I was there to do more harm as had been done already, or if I was there to help when things got going, or if I'd just stay out of the way. There was something very wrong in this camp, and it wasn't the natural order of things that was behind it. Not man, and not the things of the forest, neither. I could feel a deep, bloody gash down the side of the spirit of the woods, it was in a kind of mourning, having tangled with something ugly that didn't belong there. Something called up from outside that made Shiva's ring light up like a Christmas tree on the librarian's radar. I'd let it be known as best I could to that old spirit, the soul of the woods and the earth, that I'd been sent, as was my nature, and it could count on me. As soon as I knew what was going on here, what I was up against, and just who was to blame... I'd just gotten back into my bunk and lay there thinking, deciding whether to lay out the cards and take a look-see, or wait and get more lay of the land. I heard a door close nearby, then another, and another, and then more. Not slammed shut, but closed softly, almost like they were trying to be quiet, like for somebody's benefit. And I figured that somebody was me, as nobody'd come to roust me, and from the sounds of it, the whole camp was afoot but me. 
I peeked out my window and saw what looked like all the men disappearing into the bank of tall black trees towards the mine, their swinging lanterns lighting up the woods like hex fires on those certain summer's nights. Now, I'm not from mining folk, but I knew nobody worked at night down there. I figured I'd lay low and see how long they were gone. I must have dozed, because later I startled awake, thinking I'd heard a yell or a scream. Maybe like a small ground animal whose luck had finally run dry. Then I dozed again, because it was the first rays of dawn that woke me, and the sound of Cookie's triangle calling everybody to breakfast. I joined in the line of men sloshing through the mud and the fresh dusting of snow that had come down in the night. Just before the cookhouse, there was a long slash through the mud, deep tinged with red, that led away from camp towards the woods. I stopped and glanced at it. Boss got himself a big buck last night, one of the men said as he noticed me staring at that gash in the mud. A hell of an animal. Put up one hell of a fight. You should have seen it. Good going. So we'll have venison steak for dinner, yeah? No, he put the thing on ice for later in the season. We'll be glad of it then when the last of them's gone to ground and meat scarce. He nodded and then walked on ahead while I fell back to tighten my boot laces. I'd seen something shiny buried in that mud, and I had a mind to know what it was. From here on, I was sleuthing, and nothing was to be overlooked. After the last of the men disappeared into the cookhouse, I reached down and grabbed the shiny thing and closed it in my fist, a sinking feeling in my gut. Wiping the mud away with my shirt tails, I saw it was a pocket watch. A damn fine one. I flipped it open, and there it was. To my son, and all my sons after him. From his daddy, and his daddy's daddy before him.